grandfather who's just turned 96. I mean, he's, he said many times that he didn't save for retirement because he didn't expect to live to that age because life expectancy has jumped up significantly since the, that time. So um, I, I, I advocate for as soon as you get married, and most people get married in their 20s and 30s, as soon as you get married, go ahead and get a get a will, get a uh, get life insurance, go ahead and pay off your funeral cost. Um, take care of all these different things. And I think that mindset is slowly changing, but uh, not, not quickly enough. So those are some aha moments that come to mind. Aging parents especially, people just don't typically plan to have to, have to, to deal with that. Welcome to this new episode of Beyond the Thesis with Papa PhD. Today, I have the great pleasure of having with me, straight from Alabama, Jacob Kendall. Jacob was trained as an academic and was on the tenure track when a lot of things changed for him. He underwent a second heart surgery, started a couple of businesses, left his job, got married, uh, his father got very sick and eventually passed away. He moved twice, started another graduate program and had his first child. Needless to say, this is a lot of change in a little time. And uh, this has led Jacob to reflect upon this question of tra expected and unexpected transitions in life and to start helping people going through this, uh, like, like you say it, Jacob, pesky <laughs> midlife transitions. So, Jacob, I'm super happy to have you here on Beyond the Thesis with Papa PhD. Thanks for having accepted my invitation and uh, for being here today to spend this, uh, this uh, time with me and to, to talk about what you went through and to share some of your insights from all those experiences. Absolutely. I appreciate you uh, having me on. So, uh, Jacob, just mentioned that you were on the tenure track when different things uh, started to pile up and, and happening and, and having you kind of, uh, you know, buffeted left and right <laughs> and trying to move on with your life with, Uh, with a few uh, incidents um, that that weren't planned, and that some some of them were expectable, but um, you then had to deal with all of that. Uh, but before we go into into what happened after the tenure track, because we're on beyond the thesis, can you talk a little bit about this moment where you were in tenure track, and maybe talk about? You know what your journey was academically up to that point, and then and then go into what happened. Yeah, it's uh, really interesting. I um, was in a dual MSW MPH program, and both focused on international health and development. I was really interested in working in developing countries, especially Sub-Saharan Africa, and I expected to do the typical thing after you know my, you get in a Master of Public Health and International Health and Development. That's what I did is go and working in a development setting for a while and then get my PhD later. But while I was at Tulane, um, Tulane started this interdisciplinary PhD program uh, in aging. It's called Interdisciplinary Aging Studies. Um, that's a lot of syllables. That's pretty much just gerontology. So that's what I typically say. Um, and so I went ahead and just jumped straight into that directly from the master's program. Uh, I ended up doing my research on aging in Malawi. So I still got to focus on Sub-Saharan Africa. But already here, we can see the, the planned path changing a bit. And that would end up becoming significant. Um, 
not getting that professional experience, especially significant in terms of social work. I'll get to that here in a moment. But the uh, the PhD program was um, it was truly interdisciplinary. So I don't really consider myself a disciplinarian, but rather a um, like like we learned about aging from the perspective of uh, genetics and everything, anthropology, epidemiology, demography, um, law, ethics, architecture, engineering. So it's, it's truly interdisciplinary. And that's, that's my style. Um, that's what I really, what I prefer. Uh, and that's, that's also a significant piece of, of my plans moving forward. So anyway, uh, I was, I would consider myself fortunate to have, I ended up with a really good advisor, a dissertation chair, um, and he told me that the typical thing is when you're in a PhD program, they push you into academia and the ultimate pinnacle is to get tenure. And he disagreed with that. And he, he was very honest with me about the state of academia um, and, and went so far as to say, I wouldn't recommend anyone going to academia. Um, and I ended up doing it because I wanted to teach. I, I did not want to work at a, a research heavy institution. I wanted to work at a teaching heavy institution. Um, at first. And uh, so uh, the first position I got was social work. And I won't go into too much depth, but basically with social work, um, given the nature of that field, if you don't have any practice experience, you're not able to teach all of the courses in a department. That's a long soapbox I could go on that's very relevant for what I do with with uh, the wordsmith, um, in which mo- many of my clients are social workers. But anyway, because of that, um, it was a small department. Um, and in a small department like that, they could not afford to give tenure to someone who was not able to teach all the courses. So this was just a visiting assistant professorship. That's okay. It was in Indiana. I don't like those winters. And it it was at a conservative, uh, evangelical institution. And that was just, a. It was both an interesting and a challenging place to to be. So it was a bit of a silver lining that I had to leave after two years. And anyway, um, I really would prefer to, uh, to teach more public health, global health anyway. So then I got a tenure track position teaching global health in the university back in the South. I was much closer to home. Uh, that's where I grew up was the South, the U.S. South. And so uh, I took the position there. I got I got two offers, actually. Um, and the other one was really good. They kept on increasing the salary, but I just didn't want to live there geographically. So I used that offer to leverage a better option with the one that I took. Um, and I, when I went into that, I expected to retire there, honestly, or to retire in academia. Um, but a whole lot changed in my three years there. I think that I probably still would have ended up making a lot of the same decisions because the entrepreneurial bug hit me before I learned that I needed my second heart surgery. Um, but I do think that having the surgery accelerated that path. Um, when I had my second surgery, it's, uh, I don't mind sharing, it's uh, chronic disease is one of the topics that I wanted to help folks with and, and, and speak on. Um in my, in my uh, career and various endeavors. Uh, and so I, I've had my, it's something that runs my mom's side of the family. I've had my aortic valve replaced twice. You can only have that so many times. And that was in my early thirties. Um, and so I'm like, wow, this is, uh, deeply, deeply impactful to put it, to put it kindly. Uh, I use a lot of four letter words during those early days when I learned I needed the surgery. Um, and so the way that I typically word it is, 
you tend to make decisions about your life a little bit differently. Uh, I would say more reflectively and insightfully when you are forced at least for a moment to have to embrace your mortality. Um, and that's what I felt like I was doing. I'm like, you know, I only have one life to live and there's a, there's still a really good chance I'm going to have a long life ahead of me. But um, there's some things that I, I want to try some other things. I want, I want to make sure that I get to the end of life and don't have uh, regrets. And I used to think that tenure was uh, liberating because of the job security. Um, and I really do love teaching. I was in a great department. I had great colleagues. We had wonderful students. I had really good friends there. This was a solid university. There's really nothing I can say. Any criticism I can give of it is the same criticism that anyone working at any university can give. By all accounts, it was a it was a great job. And like I said, I love teaching um, a lot. It's why I'm trying to. It's one of the reasons I want to be a paid speaker now. Um, that I'm working on building that. Um, but anyway. Um, the entrepreneurial bug bit me right before I learned that I needed my new surgery. And after I came out of that surgery is when I started realizing, you know what, I want to go ahead and accelerate this path. And, it, and I shifted as I saw my colleagues and friends get tenure and see their responsibilities increase, but the pay not increase that much. Um, I came to see tenure not as liberating, but as stifling. Um, and I did not, uh, that's when I decided, okay, let's, let's make different decisions. And I had um, my wife, my wife now, we were engaged at the time. She was also, she was a, a staff at the university and she also wanted to uh, pursue other things. We both wanted to move out of that city. Uh, the first thing is, it's interesting that you mention uh, because there is this um, idea of academic freedom, right? Once you're, you have tenure, you then uh, ha have this are in this uh, bubble of uh, security freedom but you know my your my neighbor's freedom may not be exactly the same as mine and it's 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 totally legitimate to say this is actually not for me uh, although it might seem and it might be defendable as being one of the best situations looking at my academic journey uh, before I actually don't feel comfortable and I don't feel that I'll be fulfilled. It's totally legitimate. And, and, and I think uh, it happens to a lot of us that go through graduate school that while we are in that first year, second year, we might still be like, you know, wide eyed and, 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 um, and having this uh, uh, kind of honeymoon period, but then third, fifth, you know, third, fourth, fifth year, a lot of us realize, Oh, you know, actually now that I've seen what my supervisor does and how, what his life is, It, it's actually not for me. It's totally, I think it's totally uh, normal that you had that, that reflection, but with the plus that you had this uh, kind of um, potentiating event of being faced with your mortality, like you said. And that that's the point where actually I wanted to, uh, to uh, hook onto, which is this fact that, you know, as humans, we, we like comfort and security and at different points in life it's easy to kind of be lulled by this sense of oh i have arrived at the place and i have arrived at the, my destination and this is what it's going to be forever uh and it's not you know life in general is a journey not a, desti a destination but careers and career choices 
are parts of the journey and are not how can how can I say it another way? Well, where, whereas tenure is somewhat of a destination because you have this security once you get it, it's such a rare event in today's life, in today's uh, uh, job market, uh, that that you have this type of career anymore. Today, careers are built, are created, are mo- are molded day to day, month to month, year to year. And one of the reasons I'm super interested in this conversation is because I think one of the moments where you have this kind of, oh, I arrived at at Disney World and uh, this is the best place uh, and I'm going to forget about the outside world is when you get to grad school. In any case, I I uh, I find that it's the way you put it, which is once you're, you are faced with your mortality, which it's inevitable <laughs> to all of us, but often again it's part of these things we forget about or we kind of we kind of cover our our uh, our eyes from but if you keep thinking uh about, you know thinking about life and your professional life as a continuum versus versus a uh, you know reaching a different continent where you now you're going to stay and kind of forget about all the rest i think in my opinion and i'd like to have your your feedback i think you might be shooting yourself in the foot by by having by taking this position of I've arrived and I don't need to think about what comes next. To step away from uh, professional factors, uh, I think that they all intersect with one another. Being a gerontologist, the one that that comes to mind in, in answering a question like that is um, dealing not only with your own aging and i i usually i take the uh, perspective of the aging that your aging begins when you're born i take a life it's called a life um a lifespan view of aging right and like i i traveled i've traveled all over the world i traveled a, a ton in my 20s and, and early 30s um and i have partly because of my uh, heart disease and, and partly I also have chronic back pain and other issues. It's harder for me to do that now. And so I'm literally in just about every way in a different phase of my life. And that's okay. Um, I've kind of shifted from, okay, I did a lot of world traveling. I, I did a lot of education. Um, I was living independently. Now I'm married. We have a child building a, building a family. So, you know, it's a different type of adventure. So your own health and your own aging, but also the, one of the, one, the surprising ones is, uh, your aging parents um, is, is often an aha moment. And that's within a few months, within two months of my wife and I getting married is when my dad got sick. We, we were going to move to North Carolina um, and we dropped those plans and moved to Alabama to help my mom with that. And my wife and I, um, and, and it was a lot because um, my dad was totally debilitated and he had been the one to handle all the finances and, it was a lot of work to help my mom work everything out. Um, and he was like that for several months. So we had to deal with getting in care and all of these things. My wife and I joked like, man, we should like start a coaching business where we coach people on how to handle all these things that come up early in your marriage because we've had to do it. <laughs> um, and now her parents are starting to experience uh, aging and they live in another state. And so, um, you know, you get these ideas of things that you want to do with your family and uh, go on, you know, take vacations with your family and do all these things. 
And I, what I have found is that people don't often account for things like having to care for their aging parents within that. Um, and I think that they should. And, um, you know, previous, we're getting better at saving for retirement, but previous generations were not. I did not learn how to save for, for retirement from my parents. I've had to learn to learn that. Uh, it's just, you know, my grandfather, who's just turned 96, I mean, he's, he said many times that he didn't save for retirement because he didn't expect to live to that age because life expectancy has jumped up significantly since the, that time. So um, I, I, I advocate for as soon as you get married, and most people get married in their 20s and 30s, as soon as you get married, go ahead and get a get a will, get a uh, get life insurance, go ahead and pay off your funeral cost. Um take care of all these different things. And I think that mindset is slowly changing, but uh, not, not quickly enough. So those are some aha moments that come to mind. Aging parents, especially people just don't typically plan to have to have to, to deal with that. And, you know, it's, it's happening increasingly. So does it, does that answer your question? That's, that's just what comes to mind. It, well, it, it starts, it does start answering the question that my follow-up is in your, in your experience, what is um, holding people back from having these considerations? What are the, uh, let's say, uh, mirages that are keeping them in, in a rut of day-to-day uh, and, and just not thinking about a year from now, two years from now, 10 years from now? I'll try not to answer the question as if I think I'm an expert on human nature. Um, I do think a lot of it comes down to we fear change and we, we seek out security and tenure is one such thing. And, um, you know, what I do with the wordsmith, um, I do several things, but the main thing I'm focusing on right now is uh, social workers who want to make this mid career pivot because they're, um, unfulfilled. And many social workers or therapists are working in mental health, with, which pays crap, uh, or they're working in healthcare settings where they see the nurses and doctors, have more um, nurses and physicians have more authority in their skills. The social worker skills are not being appreciated and they're like, they're tired of this. And so they want to shift to uh, working in other industries and they don't know where to get started. So that's one of the type of mid-life transitions that I help folks with is a career transition. I've, I've had to do it myself and redefine, you know, re- rebrand myself. Um, but what I'm finding is some of these people have really awesome ideas um, and, and, <clears throat> a fairly large percentage of people I come into contact with prospective clients and whatnot. I think that they would say, you know what, if I, if I had the, uh, the courage or the money or the resources or whatever to start my own business, I I would actually go that route. And there's more, I think there's, I've read that there's more entrepreneurship now than there was in the past. And that's something I think maybe defines the millennial generation, but they, it's easy for them to recognize these barriers to get to getting started, and they're legitimate barriers. But at the end of the day, um, even if you're, it's like people are simultaneously recognizing misery in their current situation. Misery may be a strong term, unhappiness, but they're but they're not taking uh, steps to get out of that. And I do think that a lot of that boils down to some aspect of what it's like to be human. Um, I don't want to delegitimize these legitimate there. I mean, we, we have where we are economically and, uh, all these other social factors do matter. Um, those barriers are legitimate, 
but nonetheless, um, there still is that mindset of, you know, I, w- I want that security. So I don't know if I'm answering your question directly, but I'm just letting you know what I encounter a lot. Um, some people have some, some people have some really imaginative ideas, and I'm sure that's true for people who have PhDs in various fields. I mean, we know things so with such breadth and depth um, that it's easy for us to come up with uh, with ideas or potential solutions to these problems. But within academia specifically, we are conditioned to believe that the ultimate pinnacle is to get tenure. Um, and it's it's similar. It is similar with with social work, in that the ultimate pinnacle is for you to become a therapist, to get a license, and to run your own private practice. Um, and so that kind of squelches creative thinking. I think another thing that's similar with social work and academia, probably more so with social work, is um, it, it's almost evil to want to have more money. Like you should do it because you love the work. You should do it because you're passionate. You should do it because you want to help your students or your patients or your clients, depending on who you are there. Um, I, I try to, ch- I, I challenge that notion. I, I think that's a bunch of BS. We don't live in a time anymore in which that kind of mindset is tenable, in my opinion. Um, it's just really interesting to me that a lot of my friends and colleagues were seemed surprised when I told them I was leaving academia. Even though while they're telling me that, they're stressed out of their ass, uh, leading their department and attending meetings and not getting done with grading. And they tell me that their pay is not increased and the university's, you know, asking them to do all these things. And I'm just like, you realize that you being surprised about me leaving academia while you're complaining about all these things, there's a mismatch there. Why do you not notice that? There is. There is. There is a huge mismatch. And my gosh, I have so many avenues i can follow after all all you've said um and uh let, let me try to to choose one you just mentioned this thing about uh the culture uh, around uh being paid well <laughs> and there is uh, an ancestral culture of uh you are a graduate student even you're a postdoc you know you you are still kind of a trainee you're so you're you are, are not in a position to demand uh, you know pay that is let's say equivalent or at least close to what people who stopped at the masters and started working or stopped even before and started working are getting with all those years of uh, of uh, experience and you are you know you are asking for uh, uh, funding, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and uh, and scholarships and and bursaries, etc., which are always very limited and uh, are not conducive to you saving money, like you said, <laughs> for retirement, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, so uh, this is an, a very interesting point. But the avenue I kind of wanted to to follow is uh, the one of um, you were talking about comfort about the the fact that change is scary change is menacing can be you know for different people some people deal with change very well <laughs> but uh very often the reason you ha- you get tunnel vision is twofold uh you, supervisors and a culture that asks you to just give your time your blood your sweat to this honorable mission of for not a lot of money advancing science so they're they're asking you to have tunnel vision, and then 
it's funny, it's interesting because you were say, you were saying about young couples, and in in a in a way, this is also a special chapter. You you go to graduate school. Often you move town. You're independent for the first time. You are now going to become a researcher, and in a way, uh, there's a, a great parallel of I have arrived, and now I don't want this to change. Uh, this is I want to stay in Disneyland forever. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't happen. Your your uh, your uh, wrist thingy. Uh, uh, you know, there's a, a moment that that they say, "Sorry, you need to leave." And and the point that I wanted to bring is, we now know, and it's been proven and shown in different continents, different uh, uh, different academic uh, environments, that only uh, fifteen to twenty percent of people who start who start a PhD end up having a spot. You know, uh, ha- having the chance of becoming a tenure track professor, there's no, there's no more space for anyone else. So those eighty percent, they should, given that it's eighty-ish percent, and uh, of course it varies depending on the domain. But my mission, or you know, what I'd like to change would be that when you start a program, they tell you these numbers and they say, "Look, twenty percent of you are going to be able to aim for for professorship." But because eighty percent of you aren't, you know, we're going to make this degree something that's going to help you, you know, go back into society and out of the university walls. And what this would have to mean, in my opinion, is we're going to help you from day one, create a network, prepare, think about your finances, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, without considering tenure track and. This is where I think there's a disconnect. There's often also, a, um, when talking with first-year students, a, a, a cognitive dissonance. It's hard, it's very difficult for first-years to hear about this, these numbers and the, the fact that, yes, they're starting a PhD, but most probably the job that they're going to be doing, the PhD is not a necessity, and they, you know, they, they, it won't be in the academic space. I don't know if, if you see or the parallels that I'm kind of... Uh, seeing with what you said, but I, I think it's really, really interesting. This thing of comfort and of 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 just not thinking of the changes that are to come because it's un- it's scary in a way. Yeah, for sure. Um, whenever I cross paths with someone who is either in a PhD program or considering it, I tell them, please reach out to me at some point uh, or find someone else who will tell you the truth. Because you need someone to tell you this is the state of academia. This is what you're going into. And you you absolutely have to have the personal, internal, intrinsic motivation to want to complete this program. Because the, extra, the extra, extrinsic factors are not there for most fields um, because of those numbers. And the numbers are getting worse. <laughs> they're, they're not getting better. And, and so, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now th- this this leads me to this other thing that I wanted to ask even earlier on but I think now's the moment. Can you go back to that conversation with your supervisor because I think it was really uh, commendable for uh, for him to have this conversation because I I don't think it's a conversation that happens very often and and uh and it's a it's a real conversation. It's you know, it's um it's kind of addressing this problem of uh, um, a false representation of your outcomes after a PhD. And I'd really like you to maybe, you know, recall that and and go in more detail into what he said and and maybe in the motivations for him to to have this conversation with you. Yeah, 
for, for sure. Um, I'll take any opportunity to offer commendations to him. He is, uh, he was a great advisor all around and, and I was fortunate because I didn't know the importance of finding a good advisor or how to do so before I ended up being connected with him. He's the only person at the university with whom I could have re- or the best person with whom I could have studied aging in uh, Africa. So it just, it just, I was very, very fortunate. But another thing that I would want to advise people on uh, with, if they're going into a PhD program is the importance of finding a good advisor. It's really, really important. So anyway, <laughs> I'm laughing. He told me, first time he told me about the honest state of academia we were we were in his car we had to go to a meeting off campus and looking back i don't know if i detected this at the time but looking back i'm wondering is like would he be willing to say this if we were if we were meeting in his office um and and he also told me that when he was getting going through graduate school that was the mindset that you should want to go to not, and, and even it was even stricter with him because, because he told me, you know, if, if I want to do teaching, if I want to do a community college, whatever, there's nothing wrong with any of that. Um, but he went through a system um, where the expectation was you work at a, a research institution and you publish, you know, it's the publisher pairs mindset and that's what your identity should be and to want anything else is blasphemy. Um, and, and and he disagreed with that mindset. And I was just really, really glad to have his uh, support along the way. And I reached back out to him um, after I had already left academia. And uh, I told him that someone else, someone that we both know, had told me, uh, and this person is a long-standing faculty, close to retirement at a, at a very elite institution, and this person, they told me, um, like, hey, you know, you might want to consider this this option of leaving academia very, very seriously, especially when it comes because of your dissertation chair. Like, all these people invested so much time and energy into training you to be a PhD student, and PhD advisors don't get paid more to do that. Um, and again, she knows my PhD advisor, and so she said, said that person's. Uh, by name and like you you know you should talk to you should talk to him and, and you know just really think about this and, and uh i did not internally respond very well to that conversation because it was it was uh, i didn't i didn't ask for advice <laughs> um and it was clearly <laughs> okay. that old tradition older traditional mindset so i did reach back out to him and i said hey others have told me that you know, you have made this investment in me, and maybe I shouldn't take the op the the decision to leave academia so lightly. And he straight up said, "I would not advise anyone to go into academia." Um, and he still is working in academia, saying that. So it was just further affirmation of all that he had told me previously. I wonder at that point where you got to meet him, why was he different from this these other people? Uh, in, in how he reflected upon this, and you kind of said it that it was something that he had lived and that he, you know, he didn't agree with. But I, I wonder. I, I'd love to 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 maybe have him on the show and talk about why he would have this conversation because I think he must have very good reasons to do it. And uh, and I'd I'd love to um to have an inkling uh, and and maybe some some points that I can use when, when talking to students.
We have a comment here from Ilana Weinstein. I think it's crazy how many people stay in the same positions for decades, but their burnout is terrible and they aren't happy or well. Yeah, the, again, change is, is scary. Uh, even if sometimes it's what's where you are now is not going well at all. It's really hard to find security, but you also have to take risk and you can even make more of an impact by doing what actually lights us up. Abundance rather than scarcity mentality. We have to make the change for us and for future generations. Um, thank you, Elana, for your comment. Actually, risk is one word that, that kind of stuck with me with Elana's comment. Uh, and I, I'm sure you talk about risk with the people you help and you coach. And risk is kind of the other side of comfort, right? Comfort is on one side and risk is on the other side. How can we you know, safely put some of our effort and work in initiatives or in new habits or in projects that might feel a little bit risky versus the comfort you're in right now? How can you kind of ease yourself into widening your comfort zone a little bit more each day, each week? Yeah, a couple of things. Again, I, I don't want to, I'm not, I'm not claiming to be a, an expert in human nature. Something I have read consistently is humans are um, really bad about future seeing, um, about making decisions that are better for our long-term health than we have both on the individual level and the societal level. I think that that is a factor. But for me, um, when it came down to it, and I started thinking about what is it going to look like 10, 20 years from now, I knew exactly what my salary would be within five to $10,000. And I thought that I could do better than that um, by pursuing other things. And the, the path that I pursued is small business ownership, entrepreneurial uh, thing. Even if I went after industry jobs i mean i can do better than that the numbers are there they speak for themselves um so i definitely long-term thinking um you know i often ask myself 10 years from now 20 years from now 30 years from now am i going to regret staying in this job or am i going to regret not trying some other option that i really want to try and i think that the answer becomes a lot different and a lot clearer when you think about that. So that was a big factor for me. Now, I do want to say that I, I cannot deny the impact that my own health situation, the fact that I had that second surgery has had on me. And I do think that that was a catalyst. And I think it's, I talked to other people who had these same issues and like, yeah, those things are definitely catalysts. You make different decisions when you're kind of pushed up against a wall. And it also, um, it helps a lot that I have a spouse who has a good job and there's some space for me to take some, some time to build my businesses. They're not where they are, but where we need them to be. Um, and I know that I, I meet up with, with prospective clients who are just friends, um, you know, giving them insights. And if they don't have that same kind of situation, then that, that can be an actual barrier that what, what risk means to different people, it, it is different. Um, and so I tried to take that into account, but I think just realizing that we're not good at long-term thinking, if you just acknowledge that, then that's a huge step toward realizing, oh, there's a different kind of thinking I can apply to this. Because I think, in my opinion, for most people, if you ask yourself the question, um, would I regret not trying this thing, this new idea that I have, or would I regret 
leaving this job, then it's, I think most people would say that they regret not taking the more, not taking the risk. I saw an interesting LinkedIn post. And if I remember that person's name, I need to go back and see. Um, but, but she posted in the past couple of days, like this recent, <clears throat> if you, if you frame the question of, do you want to leave your job? And people are going to think of, no, it's, it's too risky to leave my job. But if you reframe it as she, she specifically said, instead ask yourself, if you knew everything about what you know about your job now, before you applied, would you apply for it? And the answer, <laughs> and she, and it was, a, it was, a, she was talking about faculty positions specifically. You may have seen this. I don't know. And she said, the answer then is no, I would not apply. And I think if you re- if you reframe questions like that, you're going to find that you get different answers. So I would just encourage people to think about these different ways that you can ask yourself these questions, right? If you knew everything about your faculty job right now, everything, you can't possibly know everything when you're applying for it, right? But just hypothetically, if you knew everything you, you now know about it, would you apply for that position? I think a lot of people would answer. I, I love this and it, it, it kind of brings me to the Marvel universe like and or, or to the X-Men. If you're able to be Dr. Xavier and, and have yeah. but the thing is you don't I really have something interesting I, I I wanna bring with this, but before we do, I want you to share if, if people want to reach out to you to uh to to learn about what you do or to, or they are in a, in a, you know in this transition, in this midlife transition and they want to talk about about it with you what's the best place to reach you so linkedin for sure jacob evans kindle you'll be able to find me there i have a website for my career coaching um, that's the wordsmith.us uh, i call it the wordsmith because i happen to be just it's a natural skill i guess of writing the very precise language that's required for a resume and cover letter so i developed my career coaching around that um, those are the best ways to reach me right now. Um, I'm in the process of building a, a website for, um, you know, I want to speak on chronic disease and aging and these other, these other transitions. Um, Jacob Evans, Kindle at gmail.com is just my general email address. So those are a few different ways. Excellent. So now I'm going to try and, and kind of recap what I, what I'm, I learned today while talking with you and then kind of bring it all together with this thing about, uh, the fact that we cannot be psychics and uh, we cannot visit a uh, multiverse. We are on earth and we have our brains. But uh, uh, one of the things that, that has stuck with me, uh, with what you said is as humans, we have some uh, um, patterns of thought. One of them is being very, being not very well uh, suited for long-term uh, envisioning of uh, or making plans. You know, over five, ten years, it's very difficult for us to make decisions and and think of effects of of decisions we take at such a long time span. This is, of course, very pertinent to new uh, graduate students because they are embarking in a five, six, depending, you know, seven year. In the UK, in Europe, sometimes it can be shorter, but still, it's a big chunk of life. So be conscious, being conscious of this limitation we have is important and is a good first step to start, you know, taking on some habits or starting some exercises that kind of help us compensate this uneasiness 
that we have of long-term thought and planning. That, that's the first very, very important one. Be conscious of that and then try to do things that help you somehow to do, uh, uh, compensate for this. Um, the other thing is the, the kind of blindfold of comfort. You can be lulled into, uh, into this situation and sensation of comfort and then wake up five years later and, and not having prepared for a transition that is there at the end of a PhD, there's a transition, be it to a postdoc to tenure track right away, depending, or mostly outside academia, outside research. And I really, really feel sad each time I hear a student saying, I'm just started, you know, I, I've just defended and I just started preparing in the six months prior. It's, it's a, such a lost opportunity. And then the, where I kind of want to bring it all together with a solution, and, and I'd like to maybe for, for you to have a, a final word about this idea that I'm bringing, is although we cannot time travel, you know, we don't have Dr. Dr. Xavier's powers of, you know, of, of exploring multiverses with our mind, one thing we can do is go on LinkedIn and talk to Jacob, talk to David, talk to people who are ten, five years Five years ahead, you know, ahead of you, ten years they they have done the transition. Five, ten, fifteen years before you, so that's a way to time travel. Actually, is through conversations with people who've done it. And what better platform today to do that than LinkedIn for uh, for you who are now in graduate school? At least in my opinion, I don't know, Jacob. Do you have a final word, maybe based on this that I just said? Um, it, it, does this uh, resonate with you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I meant to to shout out to Alana earlier for leaving that that comment. I, I know her personally because of professional networking on LinkedIn, and uh, an important part of my coaching career coaching is not just working on your resume or your interview cover letter skills. It's how to optimize your professional network in finding a job. Um, it, it, you need to spend no less than fifty percent of your time looking for a job in your career. Um, optimizing, like using your professional network and reaching out to people. So I wonder, and that's just start now. There's no better time to start that now. At the very beginning of your graduate career, when you're even thinking about sniffing the a hint of graduate school, go ahead and start using your professional network. I 100% agree. I don't think uh, LinkedIn is the primary uh, social media platform that I use. It's a really, really valuable one. That's how I got connected with you. Um, David, but there are, you know, you can find these communities. I'm, I'm a part of a, a group on Facebook that uh, is about post-acts who have, you know, or people who are thinking about being post-acts. Um, and so there are, there are other communities. Join these communities, contact these people, and be willing to have, to, to receive what they have to tell you. Be, be willing to receive that. And you may, you may get things, you know, there's this idealistic, sense of what research should be of what academia should be and that's fine to have that but you need to 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 use that in the reality in which we live um universities don't function in the idealistic way we want them to anymore the game has changed the game has changed and you people you need to be getting different perspectives from others um about 
what are the best strategies for playing today's game? So I 100% echo what you said. Reach out to folks on LinkedIn, make these connections, um, have these conversations for, for sure. It's a great final thought. Plus, uh, even if you end up being a tenure track professor, I think the university of today and of the future will much prefer a tenure track professor with a great network of people out in government, in industry, outside academia, than someone who just stayed within the walls of, uh, of research and of university. So I think it's a win-win, yeah. in my I opinion, understand. at least. Jacob, this has been a great, great conversation. Uh, it was it was very interesting to me to to uh, to make some parallels and to to build some bridges between your experience and the you know the young couple versus the the young researcher, uh, you know the 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 person who's aging versus the researcher who's also evolving in their career. I think the parallels are there because in the end we're all humans, and uh, and uh, the 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 reflections and the the insights that you've had and that brought you to where you are today, helping people uh, doing these transitions are very, very uh, pertinent and will be very, very helpful to anyone listening uh, to this interview. So thank you so much. This was, this was really, really great. And I'm really thankful that you could take the time to be on Beyond the Thesis today. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. I look forward to staying in touch. Thank you for listening to another episode of Beyond the Thesis with Papa PhD. If this conversation has helped you somehow, if you know someone who has a great story to share on the show, or if you yourself have a story you'd like to share with me on Beyond the Thesis, send me a note to listener at papaphd.com. I'm always happy to connect with listeners like you. If you want to support me in creating the podcast in any other way, you can go to papaphd.com forward slash support and choose whichever way works best for you. I am David Mendez. See you next week.